Himalaya. You're listening to the Lighthouse by One World Group, a Himalaya learning audio course. To leave your comments, view our show notes, and other resources from our guests, visit our show website at www.oneworldgroup.com/lighthouse. Be sure to also check out all of the other awesome exclusive content in the Himalaya app or on Himalaya.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Lighthouse. We've got a really awesome episode today with my guest Yoshio Osaki. Yoshio is somebody that I've known for twenty some odd years. This is really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and he is currently the president and CEO of IDG Consulting. They are the leading market research, analytics, and consulting firm for gaming and esports. That means like these guys play games for a living and review them, <laughs> and which is really awesome. They have 156 clients spanning 40 countries, and some of these clients you may have heard of. So just quickly, you know, Amazon, Nike, Tencent, Disney, Google, Facebook, EA, Morgan Stanley, BCG, Epic, Riot, Walmart, Microsoft, Activision, Blizzard, just like you know, tiny companies, right? You know, startups, stuff like that.、Um, Yoshio is one of the smartest people that I've ever met, and he、um, he's just so insightful about virtualization and gaming that I think this episode, like when we when we spoke about this industry earlier, just really blew my mind. In addition to being a consulting gaming virtualization genius, he's also an avid basketball player. He is also really <laughs> into rap music so much so that I think he would give Ben Horowitz a run for his money.、Um, not that that's the industry standard here, but among like nerds into rap music. Anyways, am I missing anything else? No, I think you covered it all and then some. So thanks so much for having me. You know, this is this is so exciting. So you know, maybe we just start with what is going on with the scope and depth of the gaming market because I keep hearing about it. It's it kind of it's very intimidating. It sounds like this massive industry that is blowing up under our feet and over our heads and in the air around us.、Um, it just it sometimes feels too big to to wrap your head around. Yeah, it actually is. It's finally having its day in the sun, if you will.、Um, it's gaming is now bigger than music and movies combined. I think last year our estimates were that the market was over 150 billion dollars, and it's on track to be over 200 billion in the next four years.、Um, it's probably going to overtake、uh, TV. Market spend、um, sometime in the next one to two years, so it's no longer just you know that geeky guy playing in his mother's basement. Although you still have a lot of that as well,、um, but you know gaming is now mainstream, and you've got a lot of folks that don't even think of themselves as gamers,、uh, but they're playing games. So、um, you know, I think also the. The antisocial stigma attached to gaming、um, is,、uh, you know, sort of、uh, being removed,、um, especially during this COVID era, where、um, you know a lot of people are not only playing games more, but they're often spending more of their time communicating with each other and making new friends through、uh, different game experiences. Wow, I mean, so is it fair to say that since we've all been quarantined and since COVID, gaming's really Like been a beneficiary. It's the. It, it seems like that's the logical area of growth. One of the many. 
Yeah, it's not only a beneficiary, it's probably the biggest beneficiary. So just looking at the data that we have internally, most game platforms across console, PC and mobile are up, you know, anywhere between 15 to 25% in the COVID months versus pre-COVID. And year over year, um, a lot of these markets are up by 50%, uh, which is unheard of. Um, You know, Animal Crossing is a game from Nintendo. The average player in the first weekend spent an average of nine hours playing Animal Crossing. So it's not just that there are more players playing these games, but they're spending more time in these games. They're spending more money in these games. And, um, you know, it's it's something that we saw coming, but I think COVID has sort of accelerated these trends, you know, by a factor of a few years. So um, it's exciting, but it's also, um, you know, it's just a weird time and we're trying to navigate it and make sense of it. Nine hours a day? No, nine hours in the opening weekend. So um, in the first, basically out of the first three days of, sorry, the first two days of launch, um, the average person spent nine hours just playing this one video game. And so that means there are a lot of folks spending 20 hours or 30 hours. Um, So it's pretty crazy just to think about you know, where gaming has come, how far it's uh, come. And then it's not just now players playing games, but it's also people watching other people playing games. So when you and I were growing up, we might have watched, you know, our cousins or our friends playing games in the living room and we're watching them. But now with platforms like Twitch, you have, um, you know, hundreds of millions of people watching other people playing video games online, um, which is crazy. But, But that's also what we're seeing. So it's penetrating pop culture. That's insane. I watch people eat is, is, is my, is my thing. <laughs> like, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, you can do that too. You can do that too. Wow. I mean, so, cause a while ago, I keep hearing all this buzz about casual games, right? Like everybody's moving away from these like complicated gaming, like real, um, immersive games and like looking at Candy Crush and casual games. Is the trend reversing people going more into the in-depth immersive, um, environment? So, you know, it's it's interesting because we're actually seeing growth across both casual and core. Um, the bigger growth overall is being seen in, in casual because there are a lot of countries around the world where they don't have access to a $500 PlayStation 4 or, um, you know, an $800 gaming PC, but they do have a supercomputer in their po- pocket. So because smartphones have become so ubiquitous, you've got, you know, people in India, Vietnam, Thailand, you know, all over the world, Brazil, um, playing games on their mobile phones. And so the casual market has expanded more. But surprisingly, console is still growing. And a lot of folks, even five, six, seven years ago, said consoles are going to be dead. And that's actually not been the case. So we're seeing gaming grow across all platforms, across casual demos and core demos. Um, but the last thing I'd say about it, and this is really interesting, is on the casual side, a lot of times in earlier years, you would say, you know, you would see like somebody playing solitaire and they might play it once or twice and then they get bored and they move on to something else. But Candy Crush is probably the quintessential casual game. Um, it's the match three puzzle game from King. That game has been around for a decade now and it's never been bigger than it is today. So Fine. even for a more casual game, you might play it for a few minutes here, a few minutes there. Um, it's not just soccer moms playing this. I mean, you've got people on trains or people even during COVID sheltering in place playing this game. And, um, you know, they're hitting record setting revenues 
10 years in. So even casual games now are seeing these long shelf lives that you would never see with a movie franchise or TV shows. Um, so that's something that we did not anticipate. Um, so that's been a pleasant surprise for us also. That's crazy. My mom plays that game, which is insane. Yeah, like, my mom does like, too. My aunt plays it. I mean, and, and, and my nieces play it. So it's also multi-generational. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's something that, you know, we did not foresee happening as quickly as it sort of evolved over time. But, you know, even casual games now, they're built to last. They're, it's not just a, a one-off for some of these seminal games. You know, people are going to be playing them for not just years, but for decades. Um, so that's also pretty exciting. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about that. You said that record revenues, right? This virtual economy, these huge ecosystems from, you know, buying level up and clues. I never pay for clues because I feel like it's copping out. But then at some point you do get like, you're like, ah, oh, I just want to, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's when I go and watch people eat. But for people that are, you know, that do pay, what is this virtual economy? Like what, um, how are people making money in these games? How are these games raking in? Because a lot of them are, are, are free to play, right? And then you have to then, you know, go and buy a bunch of stuff. Like, is that, how, how big is that economy? It's massive. So, you know, the, the way that most of these game developers make money today is through freemium uh, mechanics. Freemium basically means you get the game for free, but then they will charge money for, like you said, level ups or special content, virtual goods, in-game items. And so that freemium economy is huge. It's already over $100 billion on its own. And, you know, it's also not just within the games um, and, and buying content, um, you know, to, to make the experience richer and more exciting, but you also have this whole content creation economy as well. So games like Minecraft and Roblox, uh, Roblox, I think, uh, generated a billion dollars in revenue last year. I think 1.5 billion, if I'm not mistaken. And that's a game that's 16 years old. Andreessen just led their latest round of funding. But the crazy thing is people can actually create new levels, new content within Roblox and share their new levels with other friends and other players within the Roblox community. And they get a share of the revenue. Um, and so last year alone, I think Roblox generated a hundred million dollars in revenue for random people in their living rooms, just creating fun content for the game. So user-generated content's another big vehicle. And then the final piece, of course, um, you've got some games like Call of Duty where people spend $60 to buy the game up front, and then they'll spend more money on new levels and new content. And then you've also got advertising games. In India, you know, 70% of the revenue for India is from advertising. So there are all kinds of different business models, and so there's a lot of innovation happening there within games also. Wow. So I guess... To date, when we think about this kind of gaming economy and how it, it, I mean, it seems obvious that this is going to, this trend is going to continue. And I think for the casual listener, the first reaction is like, yeah, yeah, this is a big economy. I'll just go buy some stock. I'll go buy stock in Microsoft, right? I'll go buy stock in something else. Is that the only way to play this for, for our listeners who want to get in on this and make some money, right? Is the best way to make money with this economy to, buy stocks of people that put out good games? Are there other <laughs> ways to make money? Well, I think I think the stock approach is one of the best ways 
it, it, it is a little scary in that EA, Activision, Blizzard, Take-Two, Ubisoft, these are all publicly traded companies that are also some of the biggest game publishers in the world. And all of them have seen triple-digit growth in terms of their stock returns in the last few years. So, you know, someone someone could say that the valuations are kind of rich. But even then, in the age of COVID, you know, the stocks um, continue to go up. You've got some mobile gaming stocks that are also publicly publicly traded. You can play Tencent, NetEase, and some foreign um, stocks as well through ADRs. Um, but then, you know, beyond, you know, the publicly traded names, you know, there are a few other ways that you can get um, involved. Like I said, you can become a content creator um, within Roblox and Minecraft and some other user-generated games. And then, you know, the other interesting way and this is more for young people, since I think people like you and me might be a little past our prime if we ever had a prime, uh, is um, in the Twitch ecosystem, there's this whole I- ecosystem around live streaming. So what I mean by that is you've got these platforms like Twitch, YouTube, in China, you've got Huya and Douyu and Yokutudo and a few others where people will just basically live stream whatever they're doing. It's like a version of reality TV, but at a scale where you've got billions of audience members. And so if you want to become a live streamer, you can live stream yourself playing games and you can get followers and people will pay money to subscribe to your channel or people will, um, you know, uh, donate money if they like what they're seeing from the content you're providing. So we're starting to see this whole micro economy around live streamers. Um, there's uh, the biggest one is Ninja. Um, he plays Fortnite and some other games. Microsoft reportedly paid him $30 million last year to go onto their live stream platform called Mixer. Mixer just got shut down last week because Microsoft is now joining forces with Facebook gaming. But the idea is you, you have this whole cohort of folks that are spending all their time as a full-time job just streaming whatever the heck they're doing each day and making money off of it. Um, it's not something that I can relate to fully, but there are a lot of people out there that are doing that. So that's another way to get involved. I see. So when you mentioned become a content creator, that sounds hard. Right. I mean, I, I think for, for the people that get it, it's probably like, oh, yeah, whatever. But, you know, for, for people that are transitioning, you know, like we keep talking about new economy, automated trucks, virtual economy, all this stuff. And then, you know, the government is saying, let's take coal miners and train them to code. Let's, you know, repurpose people for the new economy. Well, this seems like something that can be accessible. You, you purchase a game through a console, you play PC games, and, and then people are probably thinking, hey, I can get involved. But you can't just jump in and create content. Like, what is the building blocks to that? Are there schools people need to go to? Um, how do you learn to create content? Are there baby steps? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So there are a few paths, right? So the fastest path is if you're already a well-known professional gamer or you already have a big online following whether it be because, you know, you're involved in esports, which is competitive gaming, which by the way, esports is now, um, that market is already now growing faster than professional sports markets and it's taking market share away, especially during COVID where a lot of live events are no longer, um, happening. Um, so if you're an esports personality or a former pro gamer, a lot of former pro gamers, they, after they retire or even while they're still playing, they develop a big social media following and they create their own channel on Twitch or YouTube as a live streamer and they can monetize that way. If you're not a great gamer, 
humor, but you have a big personality, um, similar to podcasting, you know, there are some steps you can take. One is to get the best equipment, um, you know, for audio and for video. Second thing is, um, to figure out, you know, to take a, an experimental approach. So for example, if you're playing Fortnite, you actually um, can find success on Twitch, but you can also find success on Facebook gaming where there are a lot of more casual Fortnite audience members. Um, so depending on the kind of game you're playing, if you're playing a hardcore game like Call of Duty, Twitch is more of your audience, but you can find the right platform with the right audience to match against what it is that you do well. And so each game has its own embedded community that aligns with one or multiple of these platforms that I'm talking about. And then the final thing is that you don't necessarily have to have millions of followers. You could have a smaller, what they call, dare I say, nano-influencer um, you know, channel where you might not have millions, but you might have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of followers. And they're each spending more money to follow you. And these people who are following and watching you, they're not watching linear TV. They're not consuming traditional media. They're finding their content first and foremost through YouTube and Twitch and Facebook. Um, and so for those folks, once they have that direct relationship with you, um, you know, they are generally people that will follow follow and support you for the long term, because there's loyalty embedded in that relationship. And the final thing I would say is the reason why this works is because it's much more interactive. It's much more two way, right? So it's not like in a movie where the movie experience is the same every time. It's the same two hours of content. It never changes. In gaming, the experience is different every time you play the same game. And then on the live streaming side, you can interact directly. You can have live chat. Um, you can, you know, talk to these folks. Maybe these folks want you to play a certain level in a game. So there's that interactivity that's only becoming um, more compelling year by year with more technical advances. Um, and that's an area that you don't see outside of gaming and esports. And so that's another area where you can really carve out your own niche. Gotcha. Kind of makes me want to jump in and try it a little bit. You Maybe. can do it. You can do it. It's not hard. You can do I'm it. I'm literally in the opposite business. Like I <laughs> build things out of sticks and stone. Like it's literally the opposite of gaming. Like everything is as real as it gets. That's why we call it real estate. But that's <laughs> interesting. Okay. What about the virtual marketplaces? We touched upon that. Like, so I get content creator, finding your platform, finding your tribe, if you will, and mm -hmm. then developing from there. And then in terms of virtual marketplaces, like, can I make widgets and sell them in the virtual marketplace? How does that work? Right. So there's a thing called skins in games. So skins basically are avatars or these cosmetic items that you can put onto characters inside the game that you can customize. So whether it's, you know, putting together a new you know, um, coat of armor or a new hairstyle um, or new accessories for your characters in the game. Uh, skins are now becoming a currency within games. People are buying, selling, and trading uh, skins that they created themselves or, um, you know, the game developers themselves are creating skins and there's a secondary marketplace within these game communities where these skins are being sold. So that's one area um, where, you know, Counter-Strike Go is a top five game worldwide. That game last year, our estimates indicate the skins market, just the skins market alone for CSGO was somewhere between 800 million to a billion dollars worldwide. 
And um, so that's a specific area where virtual goods are becoming um, bigger and more ubiquitous. Um, you know, in our modeling, um, we're looking at the virtual goods market within games only. So virtual goods and add-on content, that overall market last year worldwide was $111 billion. Wow. And it's going to grow to $150 billion by 2024. And this is real money being made. And the scary thing about it is we haven't even yet seen uh, the full, um, you know, bloom of, let's say, what we call digital twins. So what I mean by that is you've got Nike, for example, who's a client of ours. They have limited edition Nike cleats that Antonio Brown or Tom Brady or, you know, some big NFL players that are, um, you know, different Nike endorsers that where the digital version of that Nike shoe can cost thousands of dollars. It's not the real shoe. It's the digital version of the shoe. And yet people are now, you know, valuing their digital, their virtual identity in these games as much as their physical real world identity. So the virtual identity for a lot of these gamers and even for non-gamers is becoming as important as their real wo- world identity. And so we're going to see more limited edition digital, um, you know, virtual goods in these game experiences that are going to become more lucrative um, for folks. So it's interesting, the $110 billion market that you mentioned, did that all go to that revenue went to the gaming developers or was that spread among developers and random content creators? Like if you're sitting at home, you're furloughed or, you know, you're, you're, you know, somebody that's really been hit with COVID because it's, it's like, I, it's hard to see the economy kind of bifurcate into the haves and half nots. And COVID really highlighted that, right? The people that can, mm-hmm. that can afford to work from home, that can, aff- it's like the people that are hard hit that couldn't really take time off. And like, it, it just showed a huge gap in the inequality. And then to see this huge virtual marketplace develop, and potentially just have it have nothing to do with a swath of people that are disadvantaged. And so I'm wondering, like, when you talk about virtual, cur- like the, the currencies and games, virtual goods and this economy, is there a way to share in that? Right. I mean, there are people that can't that don't have stock portfolios. There are people that, you know, maybe like to play games, but are not deep in it. And so can they access can they participate in this economy? Can they help? Can, can this economy help lift people um, up a little bit? Like uh, the, the answer is yes, but it's still early days. So mm-hmm. a lot of these games are still paywalled where it's really just the game developer that creates these virtual goods. And so they are getting the revenue and then they share some of it with the platform where that particular game is being played. It's usually a 70-30 um, revenue split, 70% to the developer, 30% to the platform holder. However, I mentioned earlier uh, Minecraft. Roblox. Um, there are an increasing number of games where the game developer is trying to democratize it to reduce that gap between, as you said, the haves and the have-nots. There's another company called Fable Labs where they're trying to feature uh, user-generated content through interactive storytelling, where they're trying to allow content creators to build out their own interactive books, but getting the economics that a game developer would typically get. So there's a revenue share, 
they own their intellectual property. Um, they have more creative freedom and autonomy. And so there are a growing cohort of game developers and publishers that are trying to make this more accessible to your average Joe or um, average Mary that is trying to make a living doing something really interesting and unique. The final piece, you mentioned it earlier about the technology side. What mm-hmm. are the barriers to entry there? The nice thing is it's going to get easier over time to be able to create virtual goods content rather than harder. There are tools in, you know, different development suites such as Unity, um, that are making it much easier to create content where they have the asset building tools, the art creation tools, um, and the editing. Um, to, to make these, um, you know, dreams a reality for a wider swath of people at a more affordable price point. There are monthly subscriptions. They're making the business models more accessible to these people as well. So it's not like you can just wake up tomorrow and do it. But if you dedicate, you know, a few weeks, a few months, a few years of time, over time, you will get better at this. And then the final thing I would say is, um, You know, even though we've gone through a lot as a society, especially in America in the last few months with the pandemic and with racial strife, gaming is also facing its own reckoning. There's Mm -hmm. a Me Too reckoning. There's a racial justice reckoning. And so there's also a growing voice within the games community to try to give uh, um, a bigger platform to um, you know, people that have been marginalized or ha- don't have access, you know, because they are those have nots historically. And so, um, that's a movement we're starting to see from the ground up that's also very exciting. Um, and that change will not be linear. So there might be some days where there are huge advances and then there might be some days where, um, it doesn't feel like we're making a lot of progress there. Um, but it's, it's finally a time, um, you know, a day of reckoning within the games market where, um, you know, we need to have more diverse content creators to placate and to address those more diverse voices that are out there. Got it. That's a lot to unpack. It's interesting because you mentioned Minecraft, Roblox, and Fable Labs. It's especially with Fable Labs because you're saying that I don't actually have to program. Um, Because if you look at how traditional games are developed, it's kind of like how movies are developed or how books used to be published, right? You, you, you write these drafts, you put them out on a typewriter, you print out a bunch of hard copies and then your editor's like, yes, maybe blah, 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 back and forth. And then this iterative process where the publisher extracts so much rent, they completely control the market. They completely control the distribution. The same with like, you know, game or, you know, movies and TV initially before the age of YouTube and, and, you know, all of that. But now even with, you know, Netflix has done a, a, a pretty good job of giving people more access and inviting more diversity into the, in, in, into the fold. So with Minecraft and Roblox, um, it seems like what people are moving towards is let me make it easier for you to build things and get people to play. As long as you're talented and creative and work hard, the cost of distribution, the barriers, like the, the gatekeepers, you know, the middlemen are, are being kind of minimized. Right. And so if I were like, you know, Fable apps does like what, like interactive storytelling. Right. So I don't even actually have to write a game. I don't have to write code. Right. And so typically if I wanted to write like a, like an interactive story, you know, like Bandersnatch style or whatever, the production costs are huge, right? So you're saying that I can actually just be creative, go and write a story, write a content, and they 
package all the back end, co- like the, the tech for me and everything and put it together so that I can reach audiences that I could never have. And I don't have to pay. Um, I don't have to actually go through this huge funnel where I'm competing against millions of people to get recognized and publicized and I have to, don't have to do the PR. And it seems like, you know, besides the hardcore, um, the, the hardcore coding and the development, the tech side, it seems to be the creative economy is finding an outlet through gaming and virtualization that allows them to benefit and keep more of the economics. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a biggie as well, just cutting out the middleman. That's exactly right. And so, you know, it, like you said, you don't even have to learn and write one line of code to be able to participate in this economy. Um, you know, Fable is a great example because um, they do all the work for you, but they do it at a very high level. So, you know, they have the art assets. You know, you can plug in the content you need to. You can do it episodically. They give you flexibility over what kind of business model. Do you want to, you know, put in an in-game item here? Or do you want to leave an Easter egg for the customer there who's playing the game. Um, you know, the other thing too is th- there are two other trends happening that also help to democratize this. So you've got, for example, a game like Fortnite where one of the biggest catalysts for Fortnite's growth has been musicians being able to put together virtual concerts in Fortnite. So they just did a big partnership with Travis Scott, who's a hip hop artist. Yeah, yeah. He had a 28 million peak concurrent users watching his concert series in the world of Fortnite. So, you know, these games are also now creating a new, literally a new virtual world, a new platform for non-gaming content creators, artists, entertainers uh, to live on those platforms and to uh, connect in new ways. And in the age of COVID, I think that's going to become even more powerful and more important. And then, you know, the other thing is, um, like you said, we're taking out the middleman here. And when you're looking at the middleman or the middlemen, there used to be this old school logic in gaming that everybody wanted to have their own walled garden. And, and that's still prevalent to a large extent today. So what I mean by that is Apple's got their own walled garden for iPhone and iOS, right? Google Play, same thing for Android, Sony with PlayStation, Microsoft with Xbox, and the list goes on and on. But Minecraft, Fortnite, Call of Duty, some of the top games in the world are now basically telling these platform holders, you have to tear down these walls. So we would much rather democratize this so that a person playing Call of Duty on PlayStation can play with his or her buddy playing Call of Duty on Xbox or on Nintendo or Mm -hmm. on Apple on iPhone, for example. And so there is also a groundswell to tear down these walled gardens and to make everybody be able to play together regardless of what device they have. And that democratizes things too because it now will enable someone who has high disposable income and has a high-powered console that's very expensive to play with his or her buddy that doesn't have that kind of money but is playing the same game on their uh, lower-budget Samsung handset. And so that is another big, I think, uh, trend that we're starting to see, what we call cross-platform play or cross-play. That's going to open up the funnel to make gaming more accessible to the masses in a way that we had never seen before. I see. I mean, I, like, just I, I want to kind of circle back because in in our in our first episode, you know, my partner and I talk about you know if you're really looking at this economic situation, 
we recommend this whole framework of being defensive versus offensive with your own personal finances, right? Um, and part of being defensive is, you know, looking at your family budget, how much you're spending on subscriptions and things that you don't need, how much, you know, can you cut, how much can you live comfortably off of while trimming away a lot of the things that we're not aware of. Now, as a parent, right, I would love to go to a Travis Scott concert. I would have to get a babysitter. I would have to buy tickets, which is going to cost me hundreds of dollars. I would have to like, you know, and then I'll probably want to like buy snacks and other things to, you know, company a Travis Scott concert. And it's going to take me hours and hours away from my family, my kids. The total cost of that is no less than 500 bucks, to be honest, right? Like you, you factor that all in. Whereas this, like I would have, like <laughs> you should have told me I would have been on that so fast. Because it's 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 accessible and it's easy and the cost is minimal, and so when, when you look at you know just even forget about participating, just even looking at the cost of entertainment, right? If you look at um, Hulu's live subscription, that's what fifty some dollars a month, right? And then you add on things like you know like uh, HBO Max, Showtime, Disney. It's all like it adds up, right? So a family could easily be spending a hundred dollars a month on entertainment, passive entertainment subscriptions where the content, as you say, you watch once and then it's gone and then you don't know what else to do. And then a lot of people spend a lot of time just like shuffling through content on Netflix, trying to figure out what they want to do. Whereas here it's, it's almost endless. The kind of, the kind of play and entertainment that you can get and potentially at a lower price. And so just from that, you know, penny saved is a penny earned. It's a, it could be a, it's a, it's a game changer for families that, you know, are trying to be more defensive with their budget and trying to access entertainment in a way that is satisfying, um, but never consider gaming, right? So, like, I, I think that's that's something that we, we um, I, I would encourage everybody to consider. And all the things that, by the way, that we mentioned, the Minecraft, Roblox, Fortnite, Call of Duty, Fable Labs. I'll put that in my show notes. So if you guys want to go check it out and learn more, um, there's definitely going to be a, a lot of resources for you to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I think you hit the nail on the head. There's, um, you know, a few few quick thoughts on this. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, the first is um, when you're looking at a Fortnite. That's a freemium game. It's free to play. So you could enter the Travis Scott concert, the virtual concert, for free. And if let's say you missed it, um, there were people on Twitch, there were millions of people talking about the concert after it happened on Twitch. And once again, you can go onto Twitch and, you know, participate in those channels for free. Um, so there's also that, that, that replication of community, you know, yes, it's hard to replicate that in-person feeling and the value you get from that experience. But um, like you said, Lily, you have to pay $500 or more to experience it that way. Whereas you do something virtual and, you know, with the pandemic that we're still experiencing, um, you know, this is going to be the next best option and it's probably better value because it's free. A few other things for you to think about though, um, for, for your listeners, when you're looking at gaming, so even for Call of Duty, let's say, um, for the, for the premium version of Call of Duty, um, for PlayStation or Xbox, you pay $59. So that $59 price point has not gone up in 14 years. The last time, um, you know, big console free, uh, premium buy to play games went up in price was 14 years ago in 2006. It went up from 49 to 59. During that same time, 
Netflix's uh, streaming subscription costs went up by 2x. Box office movie ticket prices, I think they went up by 39%. And even cable TV packages went up on a monthly basis from, um, I think, I think they went up over 100% there too. They more than doubled in that same time span. So while that's happening, um, gaming production costs have also gone up by about 300%, but the costs of the price of the games themselves have not gone up. So in that way, it's giving, giving even more value to the consumer. Mm. Even if with the next generation of consoles, PlayStation 5 and Xbox Series X, those are going to launch this holiday. Uh, NBA 2K is a big video game. Uh, 2K just announced today the next gen version of that game will launch at $10 higher at $69. But having said that, the pricing goes up by 17% at a time where all these other verticals had already gone up by 2x, 3x. Um, so even there, you're getting better value. And you can play NBA 2K on average, the average NBA 2K gamer spends 60 hours playing that game. Whereas like you said, with movies, it's two hours and you're one and done. So even in that area, I think um, you know gaming is going to have a point of view that's going to be much more pro-consumer and especially in a recessionary environment where people have to really count their pennies and be more selective with their entertainment. Um, you know, I think gaming is going to, um, you know, also penetrate the mainstream more because um, there's a better relationship with the consumer um, and it's done more in good faith. And so, you know, the Fable Labs of the world are sort of following that ethos. So is Activision. I think a lot of these different players out there, um, you know, are trying to follow, um, you know, where consumers are going to be in the next few years where times might be tougher for them. Gotcha. Are there resources that people can look up um, to follow? I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously the best thing to do is subscribe to your newsletter, get into, you know, kind of. Is that, is that possible without being a paid client? Because I know you guys are super expensive. <laughs> like, oh, well, <laughs> I mean, we we do have a newsletter. Um, you know, we have uh, a website that has a blog that, you know, does not always get updated when it should, but it will. Um, but we also, you know, have an email distribution list where anytime new research is coming out, uh, we let everybody know about it. So they're aware of what's coming through the pipeline. Um, but, you know, above and beyond that, you know, we also do a lot of pro bono consulting work. Um, there are a lot of startups. There are a lot of, you know, entrepreneurs that are trying to figure out how to best get into the gaming and esports spaces. Um, there are, you know, startups, for example, there's one female led startup. It's nine females that are developers, designers, engineers nice. uh, that are trying to create female content. Um, in the games market because that's still a very underserved population. And they offered us equity. And we said, that's the one piece of leverage you have. And we're not going to take any of it. We're just, we believe in your mission and I will do whatever I can. And by the way, IDG is more than 50% female, whereas the overall population of females within the games industry more broadly is at a pretty pathetic 7%. So, um, you know, we're, yeah. we're trying to follow this with action and not just words. But the point is, you know, when it comes to folks that are trying to get their foot into the space, um, 
you know, high schoolers. We also are an angel investor in high school esports league that is working with 5,000 high schools around the country to provide esports services to them and also to provide equipment to build out computer labs. And they're working hand in hand with the local high school esports or the high school uh, districts and faculty and administrations at the ground level. So we're doing a lot of things to try to give voice to those folks that don't necessarily have one. Um, but you know, it's, it's a tough process and, and, you know, gaming needs to do better and we will do better. And we're trying to do our small part in that. Is that, um, if people want to get involved and support you with like, for instance, your high school esports league, um, your, your, um, consulting work, the things like that, um, is, are those uh, nonprofits they could donate to? Or, uh, is, if people want to come on as advisors, if people want to, you know, like how can people help? Uh, like I'll put it in my show notes, but how can how can people help you in this effort? And I also understand that, you know, you 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 definitely are an investor as well. And so, you know, for, for people out there that want to get involved, want to start your own platform, have ideas, have ideas for books, stories, games, um, I think, you know, what is the best way to contact you in a way that, you know, you, you don't, you get flooded with, with emails. Is there, is there, um, is there something that I can, I can make accessible to listeners? Yeah, I think the easiest way is to go to our inquiries email address. So it's inquiries at idgconsulting.com. So yeah, if you're, if you're, if you'd be so kind as to just put that into the show notes, uh, for your listeners, um, you know, we're, we are a relatively small team. So we've got 10 team members across four countries, uh, serving a lot of different clients, but we're generally pretty responsive. So, um, you know, whether it is, uh, for example, really quickly, um, there's a, there's a kid who's 19 years old. He was, he's now the, he's sort of the godfather of the esports industry in the Philippines. He started when he was 13 years old in a small town outside of Manila. And, you know, we've been working with him and supporting him as he's built out this grassroots effort to build out an esports ecosystem within the Philippines. And now he's working with Tencent and some of the biggest game publishers in the world. Um, so, so there may not always be an ideal fit where we can help right away. But if we are not the right fit, we will try our best to open up our contact network to anyone who's looking to get involved to put you in front of the right person that could be more helpful to you, um, whether it's advice or connections. And, um, you know, it's an area that's very near and dear to us. Um, you know, I've been in the games industry for 17 years now as an investor, as an analyst, as a strategic advisor, and it's been very good to me. And so, you know, we want to pay it forward. The last thing I would say, though, is no idea in this market is stupid. Um, it, even though gaming has been around for 35 years now, it's still really early days in the grand scheme of things where, um, you know, there's still a lot of innovation happening, right? Gaming is sort of at the nexus of tech and entertainment, and you're sort of bringing together the best of both worlds. So, um, you know, for those folks who are just getting, who are intimidated or worried about, well, gosh, how do I get my foot in the door? I don't know the right people, or maybe I don't, I'm not living in the right zip code. Now they do. Now, now you do. And, um, you know, and, and, and it's something that, you know, we really care about and, and we want to do things the right way. And, um, I think, you know, there is an awakening happening within this industry where, you know, some of the bigger corporate stewards are also now trying to be more active and doing the right thing and not just saying the right thing. Right. And I think that the advice and the guidance that you guys provide 
is just so much better than going to a traditional VC and just getting money and saying, go run with it. Um, just it's very conscientious and very smart. Like if, if there is money involved, it would be just extremely smart money. And I just, you know, it just it's incredible the opportunity that has been offered here because, you know, for instance, the kind of people that hire IDG um, and the kind of budgets that they're throwing at this is just it's mind blowing. And yet, you know, Yoshi is offering uh, he's opening his, his services and his doors to, to our listeners. So please take advantage of it. Um, this is, I think this is one of those things where we really can't afford to miss out on, even if it's just to have something to talk about with the generations coming up, because this is going to be a part of life, um, as much cell phones as part of our generation. Um, so can we end with some closing questions that I'm asking all of my, my guests and just kind of switch gears a little bit? Of course. Yeah. Um, so what, what keeps you at night these days? What What keeps me up at night? Besides your baby. (laughs) Will we get this pandemic under control? Because clearly we have not. Mm -hmm. That worries me. Um, I worry about my family and my loved ones, of course. And I miss, uh, you know, the days where we could all, you know, hug and, you know, see each other in person. I worry that... um, you know, that widening gap between the haves and the have nots, even though there are a lot of companies in our industry fighting the good fight, you know, I think we still have a lot of room to grow and to improve. I worry at night that we're not listening to each other. And I think a lot of people in just broader social discourse are talking at and past each other and not talking to each other to learn and listen. You know, there, there are all kinds of things I worry about, but I'm also optimistic because I think our young people, our younger generations are, you know, more civically minded and more community oriented than our generation was. And I, and I think that gives me some optimism for the future. But, um, you know, we're living in a really weird Twilight Zone episode. And, yeah. um, you know, hopefully we can get back to whatever normal is sooner than later. But, um, you know, definitely reasons to stay up at night, but also some reasons to be optimistic as well. Yeah. And that's, that kind of leads into my next question. Like what gives you hope? And I think that I'm hearing this a lot from people. The kids are, the kids are all right. The kids are doing better. (laughs) I think the kids are all right, you know, and I think that we need to do a better job of listening to them. I mean, yes, you and I technically are the oldest millennials. So I guess technically we're part of that generation, but you know, the Gen Z generation and, you know, we work with some of them on the IDG team um, you know, they don't think about success as zero sum, where if I get mine, then someone else has to suffer. Um, there is more of a community oriented aspect to their thinking. And they're not a monolith either. Um, yeah. you know, so, so I think th- there's more nuance in the world now. But at the same time, you know, the other thing that gives me hope is that, you know, even though some of the tragedies that have happened more recently, they never should have happened. Um, and, and, you know, that's something that, you know, it's just so heart wrenching for all of us to see. Um, a lot of the changes that have already been made in a short amount of time give me hope that even though not everybody in the upper echelons of power are fully listening or can fully empathize, um, we are seeing some progress. There's still a lot of progress need, that needs to be made. But, um, you know, what I'm hopeful of is that the people that do have money, that do have capital, financial capital and social capital will do the right thing. And, um, 
you know, I think we have to let the young people lead the way in that effort. Yeah, absolutely. Starting by voting, go register and vote. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's something that's made you really happy lately? Um, you know, my, my 18 month old baby, I guess he's almost 19 months old now. Um, no, he's over 19 months old. I'm losing track of time, (laughs) Yep. but you know, he, he thinks this quarantine situation is the best thing ever because, you know, mom and dad are both home. So it's been fun to see him, you know, grow and learn new things each day. So that's been really fun. And, you know, I, I, I think the, the other thing is, you know, Yes, we're all socially distanced and we're all, you know, in some ways to look out for each other. We have to stay apart. But it, I think is giving me a new appreciation for, you know, the friendships and, you know, the, the, the family bonds that we have where, you know, whenever we can have that moment again to, uh, you know, break bread together and do simple things that we're not going to take those for granted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what are you doing to improve yourself these days? I'm reading a lot reading a whole hell of a lot. Um, but you always did that. You, you, yeah, I always did that. But I mean, you know, I'm reading, I'm reading two books a month. So I, I'd love to get better at that. You know, I just, you know, free time is hard to uh, come by, but you know, you need to budget and make that time to invest. But I'm trying, you know, to read all kinds of different books, um, you know, just to expand my horizons and learn, you know, more. I feel like, you know, that's something I've been doing and, and that's made me happier. Um, and, you know, just trying to improve myself a little bit more. And then, you know, the other thing is just going for more walks, you know, with the mask on, but, you know, just going for some walks and enjoying, you know, uh, the weather as it's uh, turned a little bit better in San Francisco lately. So, you know, those are some things that I've been doing more of lately. That's great. Um, Lastly, and feel free to say no, any chance you'll freestyle rap for us or maybe later. Uh, I I don't (laughs) think I can do that. I don't think... We might need to like go whenever we're able to go back to a bar, you know, that might be the time. That's um, true. That's, that's true. That's, so listeners, if you want to hear Yoshio Osaki rap, which is very good, <laughs> very good at it, please just flood us with comments and then, you know, we'll, we'll add some pressure. So <laughs> save something for later. <laughs> yeah. I don't think, I, yeah, I, it'll take a lot to get me to come out of retirement, but uh, yeah, I'm sure we can make that happen when next time we see each other. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This was a pleasure. I learned a ton. I'm sure the listeners will as well. Um, really appreciate it. Again, I'll put all the resources in your show notes. I really appreciate that as well. Um, anything you want to add before we conclude? No, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really honored that, uh, you've, uh, been able to do this with us and, uh, you know, we're here to help and we really mean that. So for all those folks out there that are trying to figure out how to get into the games or esports spaces, you know, we're here to help, you know, we want to be a resource for you. And, um, you know, we know it's a difficult time for everybody and navigating this uncertainty and trying to make sense of everything going on. Um, but if we can, you know, it just be a small part of helping you guys in that effort for your own selves. Um, you know, uh, that's part of what we're here for. So, um, you know, thank you so much, Lily, for, uh, you know, um, giving us this platform and this opportunity and, uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. It was really fun. Yeah, it was. Take care. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the lighthouse, a Himalaya learning audio course. Be sure to check out all of the other awesome exclusive content on the Himalaya app or on Himalaya.com. To leave your comments, view our show notes and other resources from our guests, visit our show website at www.oneworldgroup.com 
forward slash lighthouse.